0: Welcome back to Summer Reading with the Deals. This is season three, episode two, The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. I realized that we didn't introduce ourselves in episode one, but I'm Adam Deal. This is Whitney Deal. We're married and we're English teachers. And um, if you're only listening to this season, you ought to go back and at least listen to either season one or season two. So season one is Absalom, Absalom by William Faulkner. Season two is Everything That Rises Must Converge, the short story collection by Flannery O'Connor. So uh, in the first episode, we talked about the Brothers Karamazov, what is this book? And we talked about many things. um, But one of the things that we alluded to is... The narrator. And so in this episode, we're going to talk about the narration of the novel. We're going to talk some about the structure of the novel, and we're going to talk about the, um, the two p- preceding texts to the novel in terms of what else is in the book besides the novel itself. So uh, one is the author's note, and one is the epigraph. So I'd like to start with the epigraph which is, if I can turn to it, I think I have it bookmarked. Um, well, it's dedicated to Anna Grigoryevna Dostoevsky, who is Dostoevsky's second wife, his wife at the time of writing this novel. Um, so I just thought I'd point that out. And then uh, the epigraph, at least in the, in the uh, Richard Pevier, Larissa Volokonsky. Translation is um I think King James Version of John twelve twenty-four. So it says, Verily, verily I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Is that what your translation says as well?
1: Yeah, it's the same. Okay. So I have the Constance Garnett right. translation, as modified slightly by Ralph Matlaw. I'm reading the Norton Critical Edition. Um, so, yeah, you know, just to clarify that.
0: And I'm just reading the Farrar Strauss, and Giroux, who I think is, uh, I think is Flannery O'Connor's uh, publisher. But um, be that as it may, the. Uh, translations are multiple uh we just have two of them you know in our in our hands uh but the translations of course are, are based on the original in russian by fyodor dostoevsky so um let's talk about i guess before you read the novel or even reading it the second time whitney what what did you make of the epigraph
1: i don't remember what i made of it going in initially because you know When you see an epigraph, you don't know anything about the novel, you're like, okay. You know, you have no idea what relation it has to anything. And I actually have to admit that I usually end up forgetting the epigraph and then having to look back at it later and say, oh, you know, now I see what he was going for with that. Um, Yeah, I do think that it makes the purpose of his work more explicit. To start with Scripture, um, I just I know that Dostoevsky loved the Gospel of John particularly, Um it's his favorite Gospel, um, and just John as a writer, both both his letters and the Gospel of John were very important for him when he was in prison camp. Um, yeah, I will say this pre prefigures the suffering that's going to take place in the novel, if you, if you stop and think about it, um, that suffering can produce fruit. Suffering is not, for a follower of Christ, just empty suffering. So you already know, if you think about it, the people in this book might suffer, but it's not a fruitless suffering. Um, so I, I did think about the epigraph when I was I'm re-listening to the, the novel right now. And there's, I just re listened to the conversation that um, Mitya and Alyosha have when Mitya is making a confession of an ardent heart, is what they call it. Um, and I was struck in that conversation by the fact that they're both saying, God will do a miracle. God will keep anything really bad from happening. God will protect us from suffering. God will work this all out. And I'm thinking, no, actually, God's going to allow. A lot of suffering. God's not going to allow this to just all work out. It's going to work out in a way that's going to seem disastrous on the surface. But then I thought back to the epigraph, which I knew we were going to be talking about today, which is that if you don't suffer, if the seed doesn't die as a seed, it can't be reborn as something even greater than a seed.
0: So I had to hustle over to get our... (laughs) Our books. Um, So, okay, uh, Notes from Underground does not have an epigraph. Crime Punishment does not have an epigraph. The Idiot does not have an epigraph. Uh, The Adolescent uh, does not have an epigraph. It Looks Like Demons does have an epigraph. It has two epigraphs. So um, it has, um, from the poem Demons by A.S. Pushkin... Upon my life, the tracks have vanished. We've lost our way. What shall we do? It must be a demon's leading us, demon apostrophe, leading us this way and that around the fields. And then there's an ellipsis. How many are there? Where have they flown to? Why do they sing so plaintively? Are they burying some household goblin? Is it some witch's wedding day? And then it has uh, this passage from Luke chapter 8. 32 through 36. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these, they being the demons that Jesus is casting out of this man. So he gave them leave. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how he who, he who had been possessed with demons was healed. So uh, this novel, Demons, which we're not going to talk about in depth because we haven't read it, um, does come before Brothers Karamazov. It was originally written, I'm not seeing it, um, 18 1872.
1: I do know a lot about this book because I read, read about it by. very extensively. But I would just say I happen to know that the epigraph um, is really the core conceit of the work. Um, not, not the Pushkin, although um, Dostoevsky loved Pushkin, but... The Luke passage, yes. he considered that that Luke passage about the demons being driven into pigs could be like a, a metaphor or a symbol or something for what was happening in Russia, where the older generation that he was a part of that kind of came of age in the 1840s and started preaching, I guess you would say, <laughs> kind of teaching um, and advocating for socialism and atheism. And, um, just a, a, a big radical move away from the traditional foundations of Russian life in the Orthodox church, that that generation were like the demons that were influencing the younger people and the young students in the 1860s, um, and seventies down even more radical and destructive paths, um. So he was blaming the older generation as more responsible than the younger generation, but saying, look at what the effects have been. And I actually think that that's a tremendous overlap with Brothers Karamazov. Um, and I, I like, it's kind of like we said with Flannery O'Connor, as they both went through their careers and got closer to their deaths, and both of them had chronic illnesses and sense that they might die, um, they both got more and more explicit about the spiritual purposes of their work and the epigraphs that they chose for these works, um, encapsulate that.
0: So I'm looking for this because, um, yeah, here we go. So this is from, um, this, this is from the book, (laughs) A Karamazov Companion, Commentary on the Genesis Language and Style of Dostoevsky's Novel by Victor Taras, um, so also, by the way, all these books that we mentioned, we're going to have an annotated bibliography for season three. <laughs> so uh, we're getting even more legitimately scholarly on it. Um, for those of you that want to find these books, and of course we have them, so if you want them and you don't mind reading our highlighting and marginalia, um, we've got them. We'd be happy to lend them to you. So um, it says, Dostoevsky wrote mocha wrote much of Book 7, which he initially proposed to call Grushenka, but eventually called Eloisha, in August at Bad Eames, a Gior- a, Georgia, a German res- resort town where he w- went a number of times for his health and completed it in S- Staraya Rusa in September. As he sent off the first three chapters on 16 September, he wrote to Lyubimov, the last chapter, which I shall send to you, Cana of Galilee, is the most essential in the whole book, and perhaps in the whole novel. Um, so, the chapter that he's talking about is the one that directly follows an onion, which is um, one we're going to talk about in, in, in depth in, in the like memorable scenes of the novel because I think it's 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 probably right underneath the um, the. Uh, Grand Inquisitor and and Ivan's dream with the devil, in terms of like, not only significance to the novel but really like, it seems like it stands out. Like it seems like it should be famous. So, um, so I bring that out because, like I said, this scene that directly follows it is is the last scene in book seven, the Alyosha book, um, and it really ends with this amazingly beautiful um, response that Alyosha has to Grushenka um, and her, her comment about the onion. Basically, like, one act of faith can redeem a person. Does that, is that how you would describe her story? I mean, we're going to talk about it at in, in, in length later, so I don't expect you to be, like, you know, <laughs> fresh on it because I haven't read it. I
1: haven't reread it either. Yeah, I mean, I would say that, uh, you know, when, just a small act of kindness or, or faith, um, it, it can redeem the person who does the act of kindness. It can redeem the person who receives the act of kindness. Um, I love the fact that it's an onion. I'll just throw that in because this is coming right after Alyosha is struggling mightily with the, the fact that I'm kind of chuckling because it, it it does seem a little bit almost silly, but with the fact that the corpse of father Zosima has a, an odor of corruption, um, that's natural, but everyone was expecting him to be supernatural in his death, you know, something supernatural to happen, a miracle. instead he just had a, a typical death. And, um, I think that the fact that an onion an onion stinks right like <laughs> um, but an onion is used as an emblem right after that of of an act of faith. Um, you don't need a flashy miracle. I think that's just like the overwhelming thing that comes through this whole section. You don't need a flashy miracle in order to put your faith in God. Um, you just take a leap of faith you just Um, take the encouragement that God gives you through normal events and normal people because it's real and it really is inspired by him.
0: So, uh, Father Zosima, um, on page 309 in my edition, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. I had read this verse just before you came. So, we're going to talk about Father Zosima in the next episode, but, um, it's interesting that the, the the epigraph shows up in the actual novel. I think that that's that's unusual that that an author will quote the actual lines again in the novel. Um, so we'll talk about that, like I said, it, at length in in it as it connects to Zosima. But I do think that as Whitney is saying, just like with demons and the use of the the passage about the the demons desiring to go into the pigs and Jesus granting that, that wish um, that that is a central conceit for the whole novel. So too is this epigraph, the central conceit of the novel. And, And it's basically saying if a grain of wheat, a corn of wheat stays on the stalk, it's still part of that plant. But if it, goes into the ground and creates new wheat that that can continuously expand and grow and flourish and as it says if it it abideth alone but if it die it bringeth forth much fruit so the concept of is death the worst thing that can happen I think that's one of the central questions of the novel and um, and not only that but like it Is injustice the worst thing that can happen?
1: Is suffering the worst thing that can happen? You know, um, can new life be brought from someone's suffering, someone's death? Um, Or should you just try to avoid... A, A utilitarian tries to avoid suffering for the greatest number of people. That's the point of life for a utilitarian thinker. And... Utilitarianism was so influential in Dostoevsky's day and age, and he just felt that it neglected whole realms of what it is to be a, a person, you know, and what God created us to be, and completely neglects eternity. Um, suffering serves its purpose um, in, in an eternal perspective um, that's so important to him, and you know. The part that you just read where Father Zosima quotes the scripture of the epigraph to Alyosha, what has just happened in the story is Father Zosima explains to Alyosha why he bowed down to Dimitri the day before. And he says, I bowed down yesterday to the great suffering in store for him. He, like, honors the suffering that he could just sense was coming for Dimitri, or maybe even had already really started for Dimitri, Um, and he says, I sent you to Dimitri, Alexei, because your brotherly face could help him, but everything and all our fates are from the Lord, and then he quotes the scripture, so there there may have to be suffering because that's what Dimitri needs, but I bow down to his suffering because I still honor the fact that it is going to be awful.
0: Right. So, you know, just the, the epigraph is implying suffering. It's implying death. It's implying, well, it's not implying, it's just stating death. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just giving a very... Serious tone to the novel, and and I do think that this is as serious a novel as you can read mm-hmm. in terms of its its philosophical and theological um, components. But as we tra- <laughs> as we transition into the author's note, it's a really comical novel, and the author's note is the first place where that comedy comes through. So. Um, Dostoevsky is the author of the author's note, and yet the narrator, as we'll talk about in a minute, um, is, is a character. I mean, it's he's a character in the novel, he's a, a resident of the town, whereas the author's note is clearly the creator of this work. And so, um, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but... You know, for example, it says, starting out on the biography of my hero, Alexei Fyodorovich Karamazov, I find myself in some perplexity. Namely, that while I do call Alexei Fyodorovich my hero, still, I myself know that he is by no means a great man, so that I can foresee the inevitable questions, such as what is notable about your Alexei Fyodorovich that you should choose him for your hero? What has he really done? To whom is he known? And for what? Why should I, the reader, spend my time studying the facts of his life?
1: That is a utilitarian cast of mind. <laughs> Why should I spend my valuable time on something if it's not useful, if it's not going to be about a great man, a great man in a worldly sense, a powerful man, uh, you know, important man, um, Alexei is poor in spirit. Therefore, is he important enough to even be the hero of a novel? Should I even waste my time looking, paying attention to someone who is poor in spirit and great in the kingdom of heaven? Do those people even matter? Are those people just wasting their... Like, all of these actually really deep, important questions come up through this kind of seemingly flippant, like, hey, I know you're probably all asking, why should I waste my time on this? This guy seems kind of boring. This guy doesn't seem like he's anybody. He's just some young kid. Um, I will just throw in, too, that Dostoevsky was fighting most of his life against um, people who start off as literary critics or, like, writers of fiction or poetry and then decide as they get more radicalized that there's no point in art because it doesn't help anybody or anything. And that the only justification for making art is if you're going to be helping the world with it, like a propaganda novel or something like that. And he thought that art could have a tremendous mission and purpose and change people's minds and hearts and do all these big things. And it didn't have to be, um, well, I mean, people were saying, let's have action, but oftentimes the action that they were performing was violent. And he says you can use art and beauty to change people's hearts and minds. That's very important for him. So, But it's funny that he doesn't go into any of that, he doesn't actually explain any of that in this author's note. He doesn't explain this great vision for the purpose of art. In fact, it has more of a comical tone, even to the point where I read that there's been a lot of critical controversy over the years about whether Dostoevsky is the voice of this author's note or the narrator of the story is the voice of the author's note or just like it's some other voice. it's <laughs> not either one of those.
0: So it's interesting that you say that because the way, like the tone of the author's note is incredibly self-effacing, <laughs> and, and to me, I, I just love it, like the, that first paragraph ends, why should I, the reader, spend my time studying the facts of his life? And then the next paragraph starts, this last question is the most fateful one, for I can only reply, perhaps you will see from the novel. And you better
1: so- read it and find out. Well, and that's,
0: and I think just the the concept of you might not know the answer if you read it, like you might read it and not get it. And that's, I think that that's, as I mentioned last episode, that's, that's the right way to create. The right way to create is to say, some people might not like this, but I'm doing it because God gave me the talent and the, the inspiration to do so. And it doesn't have to be explicitly Christian for it to be glorifying to God like I was listening to Mr. Tambourine man this morning by Bob Dylan and I'm I think that song is glorifying to God because it's a beautiful song and it's 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 making people think about beauty it's making people think about the 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 sound of language and the the ability to to voice something beautiful through language and um you know. It has this kind of almost harp-sounding guitar on it, uh, which made me think of that Washington Phillips. Is that his name? Mm -hmm. The one that played the like double, whatever. I'll pull it up on my Spotify. But um, but that idea of like that you can make something that just sounds heavenly, even if it's about something under the sun, so to speak. Because everything is under heaven, and so um,
1: God created the potential of music, so like whether you're using it explicitly as a Christian or not, it doesn't really mean that the music can't be beautiful and honor and glorify God because he created the music
0: yeah yeah, it is Washington Phillips he played it, it looks almost like a huge auto harp, but it was some it was some uh, instrument he created, and he's like the only person that played it, um, but that sound on the Bob Dylan song, Washington Phillips is singing gospel songs, and so it's almost like Bob Dylan and his guitarist, who I'm assuming is Mike Bloomfield, but it could have been someone else. I don't know. Please forgive me, Bobcats. Um, that that he he recognized that the song needed something. Kind of angelic and something that, that felt a little to to the to, to say the least spiritual.
1: It's like a lullaby. There's an aspect in the song's lyrics that's like a lullaby. But okay, the point that you're making by using that Bob Dylan example, I think, is that like the author doesn't have to be responsible for the audience's reaction. I guess um, that maybe you'll get my point by reading it. Maybe you won't. Perhaps yeah. um, we've talked about that a lot with other artists, too. Um, artists who create something that's incredibly complex, and sometimes you have an audience that just doesn't get it, or have—I mean—have kind of a blockheaded response to it. We we've talked about that with um, Kendrick Lamar's "Good Kid, Mad City" a good mm-hmm. bit because you have to be a careful listener and a thoughtful listener to to see the narrative on that like we've talked about how we've seen people use the song swimming pools as kind of like a party anthem style song and really it's a song about alcoholism and peer pressure and like the destruction that comes from alcohol and violence i mean there's so much to that song but because it you have to listen well and carefully and pay attention a lot of people don't do that i think anyone sitting down to read Brothers Karamazov is more likely to be paying attention and like understanding you would, you would think, but I read the introduction to the Penguin edition of the Brothers K and I was genuinely shocked by the reading of it that was taking place there. It just didn't take into account Dostoevsky's purposes at all. And I'm not saying you have to bow down to the author's purpose. Like, all that could ever be contained in a work is what the author intended. I don't think that at all, but to just completely ignore and revise, like basically the, the introduction I read seemed to be saying, this is just a nihilistic book that shows the bleakness of life and how there's kind of no redemption. I'm like, that's literally the opposite of Dostoevsky's intention. That seems to me just like just being a willfully bad reader. And um, during the Soviet Union years, there was still literary criticism of Dostoevsky, but it's wanted to ignore God or like denigrate Christian faith while also still saying, but this is a great Russian writer, and he, you know, this is good. It it twists and distort, distorts and perverts the work if you willfully completely ignore, say, the epigraph, you know. But this author's note does it playfully. Is self-effacing and a little I think a little wry and ironic at the same time, not completely self-effacing, also a little like, hey, I know some of you are gonna be like bad readers or just not have the patience or the understanding for this. So, like, hey, you know, go your own way. There will be people who get it.
0: And so, you know, I, I I'm still hung up on this Bob Dylan comparison because the podcast I was listening to was talking about how the birds cover of mr tambourine man kind of in a way makes it like too beautiful like it almost puts an artifice of beauty on it whereas the original has what i would consider just a a genuineness of beauty and um and the birds version only sings one verse which i think is the middle verse um anyways um I'm just going to look it up because, um, there we go. Um, the birds version, if I, <laughs> I can find the lyrics. Um, yeah, I can't find them. Um Here we go. <sighs> they only use one verse. And it's take me from a tr- for a trip upon your magic-, magic swirling ship. All my senses have been stripped and my hands can't feel the grip and my toes too numb to step. Wait f- only for my boot heels to be wandering. I'm ready to go anywhere I'm ready for to fade onto my own parade. Cast your dance and spell my way. I promise to go under it. So that verse sounds kind of druggy. Oh, yeah. And, of course, that's really the beginning of the shift from folk music into folk rock music, which really gets, like, increasingly drug referential. Um, And so um, the last verse of, of the Dylan version says, "...and take me disappearing through the smoke rings of my mind." Down the foggy ruins of time, far past the frozen leaves, the haunted frightened trees, out to the windy beach, far from the twisted reach of crazy sorrow. Yes, to dance beneath the diamond sky with one hand waving free, silhouetted by the sea, circled by the circus sands, with all memory and fate, driven deep beneath the waves. Let me forget about today until tomorrow. That line to dance beneath the diamond sky with one hand waving free is so evocative, and I actually think that's how Alyosha feels after in that Cana of Galilee chapter after Grushenka has shown basically that she's redeemable um, and that you know even someone that's as evil and fallen and that woman that she has an onion of faith. Um, Alyosha just has this ecstasy um, and, and that he has the same feeling at the end of the novel. And so that the author is telling us Alyosha is the hero of this novel. Well, if you just erase the, the author's note, you would think either Dimitri or Ivan is the hero of the novel.
1: Whereas in reality, this is supposed to be a prefatory novel for a second novel that had more firmly um, Alexei Alyosha at the center of it. And, you know, it's funny. um, I've read, like, four or five different things that that Dostoevsky said to different people about what he was planning to do in the next novel. It seems like he hadn't quite decided yet, or maybe it was, like, this novel and he was going to do all sorts of different things. Like, um, one thing I read is that he would... It would take place, like, in the 1880s. it would be, like, really contemporary to when he was writing. And Dimitri would come back from prison. So I guess he didn't escape. He went to prison, which I think would be actually a, a good thing, a sweet thing. And then Alyosha went through a complex drama with Lise. <laughs> so whether he married or didn't marry her, it's something... You know, anything involving the Koklikovs is going to be a complex drama. Oh, my gosh. But... um. That's one thing. Another thing was that Alexei was going to commit a political crime. He was going to decide his conscience was telling him he had to commit some kind of crime, and then he was going to get executed for it. That was like another idea he had for the second novel. Um, In Russia, all sorts of things were crimes that you would never think of as being crimes. You get arrested for any number of things. Like The environment there would make it more plausible. I think that like a Christian might feel a conviction to commit a crime. It was a crime to just give a speech in public without having the censors approve it. Like, a lot of things were crimes in Russia. Um, And some of the most explicitly Christian stuff from Dostoevsky's novels would get stripped by the censors, taken out. So it's like, you never knew what the censors were going to condemn. So he could have been speaking out in a very explicitly Christian way and be committing a political crime in that environment. But anyway are like, Oh, and then a third option I heard was that the book was going to focus on the younger generation of boys that he was mentoring at the end. So that means the end of this book would set up the second book where Alexis kind of more of an adult and whatever's happened to him has happened and the kids are taking up his mantle and fighting for the same things he was fighting for.
0: So, you know, that promise of a second novel is, is <laughs> sadly not fulfilled because Dostoevsky uh, dies, but it's interesting in the author's note, so, so this is the, basically the last full paragraph. It says, um, to be sure, the keen sighted reader will already have guessed long ago that that is what I've been getting at from the very beginning and will only be annoyed with me for wasting fruitless words and precious time. To this I have a ready answer. I have been wasting fruitless words and precious time, first, out of politeness, and second, out of cunning. At least I have given some warning beforehand. In fact, I'm even glad that my novel broke itself into two stories while preserving the essential unity of the whole. Having acquainted himself with the first story, the reader can decide for himself whether it is worth his while to begin the second. Of course, no one is bound by anything. He can also drop the book after two pages of the first story and never pick it up again. Which, by the way, we hope you don't do. (laughs) But it is tempting. But still, there are readers of such delicacy that they will certainly want to read to the very end so as to make no mistake in their impartial judgment. Such, for instance, are all Russian critics. So, like Whitney is saying, the irony that he's speaking with I'm just going to say sarcasm because I like sarcasm and I hate, I hate the word irony. I hate the concept <laughs> of irony. It's
1: too ambiguous. As it well. is.
0: And, and the, just the playfulness that he has there shows that he has far more command of this story than you could ever imagine. He does. Um, especially because the narrator just seems kind of, he's, he seems like an amateur, but we'll, we'll talk about him in a second. But, um, but the end of that author's note is is really interesting. That Dostoevsky is is kind of saying, like, "Watch out! There's something more clever to this than you think," um, and and almost like he's speaking to the current generation of readers and critics and whatnot in a in a, a delivery mode that they will understand.
1: It also okay. I'm going to read one more sentence or two. Um, it says, Well, there's the whole foreword. I completely agree that it is superfluous, but since it has already been written, let it stand. <laughs> and now to the matter at hand. It says, in a way, so self conscious, you know, in a way that you try to pretend to be not to be in a foreword where you're like, Well, now I've written a foreword. There's your foreword. It's like if you, got, if you got to the end of a student essay and it was like, Well, I've tried to write this essay. It's not amazing, but it's three in the morning and it's due at eight, so let it stand. Bye, a Deal. Like I would find that kind of charming, even though so, I, so would I. I might be like, let's make this a postscript or something, and not part of the official essay. But I would, I would be like, this is an intelligent move, kind of, and not a clunky formulaic move. Um, Dostoevsky got really famous and influential because he made this monthly journal called diary of a writer and he wrote the whole entire thing which is very unusual he would write this big thick magazine every single month about reacting to the news of the world like he would have a theme for each issue so it'd be you know like the woman question and whatever emancipation of the serfs um he got really famous that got very popular because he spoke in this down-to-earth style and people kept remarking well, it's like he's just talking to you. It's so casual. It's like it just flew out of his pen and he just published it. It doesn't seem stilted and formal. I think he's doing the same approach here that works so well for him there. Yeah,
0: and that's also why I think podcasts are so successful right now. I, I just, you know, I've read a lot of academic ease, and um, I, I just don't see the point in writing in such a way that is is meant to show your superiority to your to to your audience, I, I think that the point of of doing it is to connect rather than to show like you don't belong in this company of of one, um, and and you know that you would make yourself an expert on something by being the only person that can talk about it. That's such a lonely life, and. Dostoevsky, in this author 's note, is inviting people to connect to his story he 's not doing it necessarily primarily out of a monetary monet, monetary, monetary reason he 's doing it out of the the sincere desire to say, "I spent a lot of time doing this, and I would love if you would spend a, a you know a, a small portion of that time that I spent reading it and considering it and of course <laughs> depending on how fast he wrote it, I might have taken as long to read it as he took to to write it. But um but be that as it may, I think that the author's note is is so endearing to me that I, I just I, I feel such a kinship with Fyodor Dostoevsky that it's almost like I feel like he would be my best friend.
1: Honestly I actually kept thinking that reading the biography, too. I was like, something about him is kind of like Adam. Um, Part of it is that he was so, like, generous and, like, concerned about others and, like, kindly. And also would get so mad sometimes. And he could just be very, like, grumpy and, like, irascible sometimes. And I feel like you've got that, too. Like, he... Do you remember how Mitya says to... um, Alexi, something along the lines of, like, um, I think it's when he's quoting all that poetry. And he's like, Hu- the human human beings are just too capacious. Like, they just contain too. They're too broad. That's the word he uses. The human beings are just too broad. He's like, I just, I hate that I'm so broad. Like, I'm a contradiction in terms. And therefore, I feel unsettled because I don't know who I am. Dostoevsky really he was a a broad person, you know, like people saw so many different sides to him that they were like, I can't believe this is all the same person. And that, I feel like you're like that too.
0: Well, you know, <laughs> the concept of the Renaissance man or Renaissance person, if you want to be, you know, inclusive, um, was a huge concept when I was growing up. And I think that even though it's impossible to be a Renaissance person because there's too, there are too many fields to 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 master these days, um, that concept of like jack of all trades, master of none, it's like eventually if you master one of them and you start mastering more than one of them, then you really truly are someone who who is like Leonardo da Vinci and can just like invent the helicopter and paint the Mona Lisa and. You know, be the architect for such and such. You know, um, I think that that it is uh, it can be limiting to have that that level of ambition and desire to ba- basically um, burn the candle at both ends to borrow <laughs> to borrow a, a moment in the novel uh, in the trial. But um, I think that that's. You know that's something that dostoevsky really had to it's almost like as he as he neared the end of his life, I don't know if he knew he was going to die imminently, but I think he knew like okay, I have epilepsy i have I've been ill almost my whole adult life
1: He kept going to that place you mentioned bad ms mm-hmm. in Germany for emphysema treatment he had that's what he died of emphysema. So he, like, was coughing and he couldn't breathe. So he had some, like, sense like of... Like, chronic serious. Oh, no. Yeah. Um, like, am I going to see my children grow up? Kind of right. foreboding.
0: And, um, and he did have a child die. Like,
1: yeah, two children died. Two children died. Okay. One named Alexi. Yes, not terribly of epilepsy, mm. not terribly long before he started writing this novel.
0: And and it's not like, you know, I mean, he might have had children die in childbirth or miscarriage as well. And so it's not, you know, that that was so much more common then that uh, when Ilyushinka dies, you know, it's not like today where a child that's 11 or 12 dying is like th- this is unthinkable. Um, it certainly was possible back then, but um, just that he had a child die that was in that age range and that he was named Lexi, you know, it it, it points to this novel having a lot more personal connection to him than it just being this, like, um, novel of ideas that's an intellectual exercise and, like, like, kind of trying to flesh out the philosophies of... Um, like socialistic atheism versus christianity and ortho ortho you know russian orthodoxy
1: just to add to that concept that this is such a personal novel in a lot of different ways to him um one of the most moving and just like harrowing parts of the book to me is when right at the very beginning when that peasant woman oh well, it's like i don't know if they're I guess they're peasants. They're not like serfs, but they're peasants. This peasant woman comes to Zosima and her little boy has died and she's had other children die, but this one just hit her harder and different and she just can't live with it. And she leaves to go on pilgrimage to see Father Zosima and she's like, I've left my husband and I I know he might like drink, and, you know, get become an alcoholic when I'm gone, but I don't care about him anymore. I just don't care about anything. It's just so awful. It's so sad. And, um, he gives her a lot of time. He really lets her express herself for a long time, you know, for, like, pages. And then Zosima is so compassionate to her. Like, he does tell her, remember that your little boy's in heaven with God, being comforted. But he says, it's Rachel of old weeping for her children and will not be comforted because they are not, such as the lot set on earth for you mothers. Be not comforted. Like, he gives her permission to not feel, I'm starting to tear up talking about it, gives her permission to not feel comforted, to not put a happy face on it, you know? And he says, just always remember that your son's in heaven and um, go back to your husband and don't abandon him. But you don't have to be comforted yet. Like, if you're not comforted yet, you're not comforted yet. I thought that was so kind and beautiful. And those are the same words. Getting emotional. Dostoevsky went to a... um, Shortly after his son died, when he was getting ready to start this novel, he went to a monastery to do some research, and there was like a kind of older style, you know, like revered monk there, and he told, his, he told this monk how hard a time his wife Anna was having about the death of Alexi. and these are the exact words mm-hmm. that the monk told him to tell her. Because she mm. had become like in grieving, his wife had become indifferent to the kids and to him for a while. Like, she couldn't engage with any of them, and the the monk was telling her, you know, it's it's okay to not be comforted, but you need to like come back to your family. They need you.
0: Yeah, and I think you're bringing up a great point about just the necessity of family that um, God has given us all families, and sometimes that's an adopted family. You know, sometimes that's a um, you know, a, a replacement family, you know, um, but that, that the way forward is the people that God has put into our lives and, you know, for someone that like, say is an orphan, it's like, well, may, maybe God has put other adults, you know, or older adults, um, you know, into your life to, to, to start to build those bonds again, um. Because you know, I think about Jesus on the cross saying, like, woman here is your son, man here is your mother, uh, basically giving John the 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 gospel writer uh Mary as a mother and, and saying like you 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 be to her as I have been as a son. Um and, and of course she has other sons including the you know, James, the writer <laughs> the writer of James. Um and just that that There is hope in grief, but there is no need to deny grief. And I think that that, you know, Whitney's talking about, like, don't be comforted. Like, there is a time to weep and a time to rejoice. And and I think that, um, you know, in, in his grief, Dostoevsky writes this novel about this, like, amazing character named Alexei. And, you know, maybe that's a way for every parent that loses a child to, to just have a healing process is to, like, basically write a story that imagines what kind of child this person would be, you know? And, uh, you know, it, it's it's such a bittersweet thought because it's like, well, of course I would rather have Josephine than, than a book about, you know, hypothetical Josephine, but it's like if Josephine were to pass away maybe that would be a way that that god could could give me some some degree of connection to her you know even even as i know if she has faith in christ she's got something better than i can ever give her but you know in the in the interim in the meantime i think that that's the that's the challenge that that parents face that lose children and and of course this novel is about a parent that loses a child but but that's such it's such a um it's such a like tiny minuscule part of this novel and yet we'll talk about it when we get to the end why does it end in that fashion rather than ending with say uh Dmitri or Ivan or or even just the brothers being together you know like ending in the karamazov family um and so you know that that the author the author's note is setting up this story to be about Alyosha is very powerful because <clears throat> there's no other author's note in any of the other Dostoevsky books that we have. So why he thought he needed to add this, it's just interesting. You know, it's it's like he clearly has great aims with his other books, but this one, it's almost like he puts it in here. In a way that that um, is disarming and and is is like disarming and charming and 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 endearing, and I think that that's you know that's Alyosha in in a nutshell. Like he he just kind of is likable to almost every character, and the ones that don't like him are the ones that are so deep in their sin that they they. They kind of can't stand being around him, and I think it's not that they dislike him; it's that they dislike themselves for for what they're doing. And and I've had that same experience, and Whitney has too, where it's like people will be thorny to us because they don't want to be around the Holy Spirit that is within us. And when we feel, you know, when we've been in in sin or unrepented uh, habits, you know, that that made us feel like we didn't want to be around either each other or other Christians, and, you know, one of my favorite characters in novel, in any novel, is, is Razumekin in Crime and Punishment, and his name means to bring to reason, and he, you know, he helps bring Raskolnikov to reason and to his right mind, um, and I think in our right minds we see Christ clearly, and we're, it's easy to put our faith in him the way that a child can put, a, put their faith in, in an adult, but, um, that's part of what this, I think, this setup is doing, is kind of asking us to put our faith in the author's design. Um, and if you do so, I, I think you, you're rewarded with a really beautiful novel that, that comes together in, in a, just a profound way. Um, and and <laughs> sometimes even in spite of the narration, which, by the way, we're going to talk about imminently, Um, But, Winnie, what else have you got on this kind of, like, topic before we move to the narrator?
1: Just one more thing about the author's note is it does not give much information, as we've said. It just says, maybe you'll like this book, maybe you won't get it, you know. Um, Why should we spend time with Alexi? But then he does give a slight sense of why we should spend time with Alexi that is actually, I think, very important to him. He says that Alexei seems eccentric. And then he says, well, eccentrics are the exceptions, they're the oddities, right? They're the weird ones. Um, what, really, what's the point of paying attention to an eccentric? Because it doesn't tell you anything about human nature in general. That's just the outlier. And he says, on the contrary, it sometimes happens that such a person carries within himself the very heart of the whole and the rest of the men of his epoch have for some reason been temporarily torn from it as if by a gust of wind. So in other words, he was envisioning Alexei as being a true Russian, like a, a true man of his people and of his nation, that the nation itself was getting carried away from by like a gust of wind of just like Western ideas and culture and, and, new intellectual fads, and he said, you know, Alexei's going to seem like an eccentric to the types of people who will read this book, but really he is the quintessential Russian. So just, I think that's an important. Russia, for Dostoevsky, had this special place in human history. He believed it was going to be used by God to bring the whole world back to Christ. Mm. It's very sad that it didn't work out that way but he he had a vision for that he he hoped for that desperately and he saw Alexei as a quintessential russian if that were true that the quintessential russian were like alexei you could see how russia would have a powerful role to play in bringing the world mm. to christ
0: and you know without getting too deep in the weeds of the ukraine russia conflict that has been the stated purpose of the russia uh, invasion of ukraine from the russian Media and really uh, from Vladimir Putin, especially, um, is that that they wanted to reunite the Ukrainian spiritual center of the Eastern Orthodoxy with obviously Russia, the modern country. Um, so, you know, you may think, well, that's that's not an excuse for going to war, but you know, like Whitney is saying. Russia sees itself as having an essential role to play in the – maybe not the end times, but like in the – I guess like like the the re-empowerment of the church. And if that means power on earth, then mm, sad to say that's probably not going to work out for them just because that's not what the church is really here for. But if that means that it's it's going to have a power in say, um, reuniting the the Catholic Church with the Orthodox Church with the Protestant Church all under under Jesus and under Scripture, um, then then you know so be it so be it you know that what like Father Passy says, and and if it takes war to get there, you know so, sometimes you know sometimes it takes war to get. Uh, growth in in either society or restoration um, in in uh, people's hearts, and so you know it is it is very unsettling to see world conflict, you know, especially as it might involve America. But at the same time, America has had it really good for a long time, and you know, people that live in say Syria, you know, <laughs> or the city of Beirut. Or, 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 all sorts of places across the world they know nothing of the ability to sit down and make a podcast you know that they, they know nothing of these things and like when he's saying Alyosha is the true Russian that he is somehow what Russians should be and have the capability of being you know and, and that that he seems like an eccentric and, and, and uh, um, you know, an odd man out in the novel is just indicative of the world's going the wrong direction, not Alyosha.
1: You know, what's interesting about what you're saying is that Russia had a somewhat similar situation to this happening during Dostoevsky's lifetime, the Crimean War. All right, that's what it's called in um, Britain. I think they call it the Turkish War in Russia, but it's the same war. But... During Dostoevsky's, you know, kind of adult writing life, Russia decided, well, they felt like they were the protectors of the other Orthodox Christians wherever they lived in the world, you know, and there were Orthodox Christians under the Turkish Empire, and they wanted independence, and Russia felt like a responsibility to protect them. I mean, the idealistic reading of it, the situation, which is what Dostoevsky had is that Russia was valiantly protecting the rights of the Orthodox Christians around the world, you know, and taking on the Turkish empire. And it was like a second, or not a second, but like a, a latter day crusade in the Holy Land and things like that. That was the, that's 50s reading of it. And he probably, if you're here today, might have the same reading of the Ukraine situation because he's just, he's very, I mean, he, he loved Russia to the point that he hated other nations, like virulently. It was really in a way that to me that doesn't make sense as a Christian to be so nationalistic and jingoistic. But he, anyway, he's because he felt that the Orthodox faith was the only faith that had stayed true to Christ. And he's very prejudiced about that. But he read that situation that way. But other people looked at the situation and saw, oh, it's really serving Russia's material interest to be, you know, they, they have, like, shipping interests. They have economic motives um, for trying to take over territory and gain more of a foothold in the Turkish, you know, kind of lands. And so there are different ways you can, you can look at things from a cynical or an idealistic lens, and probably most times the accurate picture is somewhere in the middle. And if you go right. too far in one direction or the other direction, you might be missing something
0: and you're bringing up the concept we talked about last episode virtue signaling versus sacrifice and if war is all sacrifice and no no real gain you know then you can start thinking like okay well this country is going to war um to to inflict severe um Hardship and casualty upon its own people for the sake of others, which is of course a Christian ideal, which says you know um, you know love others as yourself, or basically like put others before yourself, and um, and if that's the case, then that's that's one way to go to war. It's not a very popular way, but you know the opposite being exp- uh exp- explicitly for material gain at the expense of the, the country that you're fighting.
1: And probably some of your own people, too.
0: Right. That's, yeah. that's, I think, you know, the case for most wars probably in all of history. And, um, and, and I think we're right to, to flinch at that and say that's wrong because aggression in Christianity really don't go hand in hand. The only thing to be aggressive about in Christianity is spreading the gospel and telling other people about Jesus. And, you know, we're doing that in this in this podcast, but we're not doing it in the sense of, like, we're going to find every non-Christian we know and make them listen to it. It's just that if our non-Christian friends are listening to this and and they hear the gospel from us, then then good. You know, it's still your decision to to follow Christ and to commit your life to him, but it's, it's the best way. And that's why, (laughs) that's why we're, we're talking about it is we we don't want to mince words and pull punches. We want, we want to see our, our earthly friends in heaven because it's going to be a lot longer in heaven than it is on earth. And as much as we enjoy your company or your visits or, or or working with you or whatever, whatever it is, you know, we love you, and and we're telling you this that that Jesus is is Lord, and and the only way to to know eternity with with us is is to confess Jesus with your Lord and believe it in your heart, and and that Dostoevsky is doing the exact same thing with his writing, you know, in a way that may not. Uh, endear anyone to him it may it may be off-putting like this author's note might have been off-putting to people that might have said oh I thought I thought Dostoevsky liked me or I thought this was important to him but but really he's setting up this story to say if you don't like Alyosha you don't like me either
1: all right do you want to move on to the narration okay well okay I will just start if you want I'm used to you asking me questions, but um, I'll just start quickly by saying when I read this book for the first time, I thought there was something a little weird about the narration. Um, And the first time I read it, I did not sit down and pore over it and take notes. I just read it, which is unusual for me. But the thing that I thought was a little weird was that we initially get this narrator who is a part of the town, just... Seems to have learned about the events of the story through rumor, partly and hearsay. Um is Adam he's getting some ice for his drink. <laughs> so, okay. If you heard the little rumble rumble. Um yeah, a very limited narrator, right? Um, maybe it reminded me a little bit of a Greek chorus in a in a Greek play like something like Antigone. The chorus is just like elders of the town who are watching what's happening and they have their opinions about it. And so that's the narrator. But then there are all kinds of parts in this book that that narrator 100% couldn't know about. Like private conversations, no one involved in the conversation would have told him the details of the conversation. So then it's like all of a sudden it's an omniscient narrator um, who knows people's thoughts and knows private conversations, knows about things like Ivan's hallucination of the devil and exactly what that was like, even though Ivan was in like a brain fever after that and couldn't have told anyone. So you, it's like you have two narrators. And then it was nice to have that confirmed when I was reading this um, biography and it says um, two narrators are provided. (laughs) One who comes to the foreground and is indirectly characterized as a resident of the town personally acquainted with the Karamazov story, another who allows the characters to express themselves in lengthy monologues or in dramatic confrontations with hardly any commentary. Um, I would add there's a third narrator. I guess if there's like a person who's a, you know, community member, there is a sort of neutral narrator who just narrates what happens and doesn't really say anything way or the other. And then there's a third narrator who seems to be able to get deeply into people's psyches and and into their heads and know everything. So this fully omniscient narrator. Um, Why? Why didn't you worry about that being contradictory? It's, It's fascinating.
0: So this is also from a Karamazov companion commentary on the Genesis language and style of Dostoevsky's novel by Victor Terrace. It is on pages 87 and following. It says the polyphony of the brothers karamazov extends to the narrative voice dostoevsky chose a personalized narrative voice the narrator's manner is that of a conversation with the reader and i think that what he's getting to that point about like that's the first narrator it seems like a person okay it says the narrator's manner is that of a conversation re- with the reader, and his vocabulary and syntax tend to be those of an improvised oral narrative. Sentences and paragraphs are not well constructed and well balanced, but appear as chains of sentences in which thoughts are grasped, as it were, step by step, supplemented and elaborated both in their content and in their verbal expression, as though the author were gradually and in the course of writing these words, groping his way toward a definitive formulation of the of his ideas. I think that's, that's a great description of how it feels to read this. It's like listening to me tell a story, like where Whitney sometimes has to <laughs> say, I think the point Adam was trying to hit at there because I'll just go into something and then not explain it. And it's like my train of thought just went from London to you know, Paris, and you thought that it was a, a subway train and it was actually going through the tunnel. <laughs> and it's like I didn't tell anybody we were getting on the channel, we are going to Paris, uh, but that's where my mind went. And so I think that that's, uh, you know, that's interesting that it says that it says from the reader's standpoint, this means slower, more difficult reading, but also a greater chance for identification with the narrator's point of view.
1: Yeah, and just to reiterate that that same point, I just – this is from a Russian scholar named V.E. Um, It says he was writing in a philosophical, publicistic way, um, which advanced a definite tendency and advocated a specific moral, religious point of view. But he knew that many of his readers would be opposed to that moral, religious point of view. So he couched his... Moral, religious point of view. And a narr- narrator who is a kind of, well, I'll just read it. It says, who has a fumbling, tentative quality in his assertions. An uncertainty about details. Um, he has a lack of literary sophistication. There's a heavy-handedness in his expository technique. All of those things win you over to him a little bit so that if you had a narrator who was kind of a George Eliot style narrator, who's like an orator from on high or something like a prophet who was like, here is what you shall learn from this work. It's very serious and moral and philosophical. You might be off put by that. But when you have a narrator who's like, I don't really know what to make of all of this. I mean, I just live in this town and this is a pretty fascinating story, but I'm not really sure what to say about all of it. you You're disarmed, like you said about the the author's note. You're um, not put off. You give someone the benefit of the doubt when they're telling you a story a little awkwardly, but they seem to have a lot of goodwill behind it. You're just like, yeah, I'll bear with you. Okay. Um, I do think it's important to know that going into reading the work, though, if you're the kind of person who puts things down, if they don't immediately grab you. Because I don't think this book immediately grabs you. It's kind of rambly, and there's a lot of backstory and digression, and he'll say, I've already told you that. Or he'll say, I'll, I'll just I'll have to get into that more later. Sorry if I'm boring you with talking about this other thing so much. And you might be like, this guy is an amateur. Why am I reading this novel? Now, in Russia at the time, and, to, and today too, Dostoevsky has all this cachet so that people will be like, oh, there's a point to this. I'll just give him the benefit of the doubt. But if you just, if this were his first book and people picked it up, they might be like, this guy's a terrible writer. Yeah. What is going on? Like the little sub stories are interesting in and of themselves oftentimes, but then you're like, why is he telling so many sub stories and like side notes? I don't, I can't even follow all the characters. What's going on?
0: So um, this is going to digress, but here we go. Um, I think that one of the, principal stories that I see overlapping with Brothers Karamazov is the Royal Tannenbaums and it also has a narrator that seems kind of like this narrator um kind of almost like he's trying to be serious but he's also very amateur and so it feels like he almost like so so I'm gonna well I'll read it in a second but this, this um I'll just read it now. It says, um, the beginning of the novel creates the impression that perhaps Alyosha has told the whole story to the local resident, who has then added some circumstantial detail of his own. Thus, we get accustomed to the latter's knowledge, sorry, the latter's knowing a great deal more than he ought to as a mere local resident. So obviously, this is not just someone who presumed to know like he he had to find out details from from someone um and i i think that that's it just feels that way about the royal tandem bombs as well it's like the narrator is somehow telling this story because someone has revealed these things to him about the characters in that novel and the same is true of um uh arrested development also has a narrator kind of has a personality and a little bit of a, you know, like I would say a great sense of humor Um, and a lot of kind of like, well, we'll get to that later. Or here's on the next, or as a development and then it never happens. Um, And also both stories involve three children. Um, (laughs) And so, you know, you have a father that's kind of a similar buffoon father, who has a distance from the children, like basically is, is broken off in the, in his connection with his children. And, um, and so, you know, in some ways it's like each child has his own, uh, narrative, narrative line in, in, um, in Arrested Development. And, and you have, um, Chaz, Margot, and Richie and Royal Tannenbaum's, um, but there's also this element of, like, Anyong is the adopted child, similar to Smerdyakov. Oh, my
1: gosh. <laughs>
0: yeah. The more you think about it, the more you're like, whoa.
1: The weirdest thing <laughs> just happened in my brain when you said that because yesterday I was reading about Smirjikov and about how in the original Russian he says, he puts this little S on the end of his words that basically is the English equivalent of saying, like, Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Sir, ma'am. Constantly when you're talking, and but that he has a strange juxtaposition of this servile way of using his words, where he's like, "Ma'am, ma'am, sir, sir," but then he also looks insolent and like he doesn't mean any of that servility, and like he's just doing it because he's supposed to. So he's he's really annoying to people. That's what the the um, Ralph Matlaw's translator's note said that he's annoying to people. And when I saw the word annoying, for some reason my brain read it as Anyang, and I thought about Arrested Development, and I was like, Anyang. And then just kind of moved on with my life. And then you just compared Smurdyakov to Anyang. So that's like I had a moment of prophecy yesterday.
0: And to spoil Arrested Development for you, which is not really a spoiler, but um, Anyang's family had started the original Frozen Banana Stand and then George Sr., George Bluth Sr. Um, basically took over that business model and, and just, like, started a better banana stand right next to it. And so there's this element of, like, Anyang is um, trying to, like, take revenge on the Bluths, just, just like Smirjikov is. And um, then
1: you said it's Eli Cash and the Royal Tenenbaughns yes, who's the same th- yes. figure. Whoa! is it possible that both of those things were actually inspired – Dostoevsky. If anyone knows the people who created, like Mitch Horowitz or, um, you know, Owen Wilson or um, Wes, Anderson. Wes Anderson. Why could I not remember the name Wes Anderson? If anyone knows any of them, tell them to let us know whether they were influenced by Dostoevsky.
0: Well, you tell me, Royal Tannenbaum's fan, in book, whatever this is, um, book eight, page. Uh, page 409, chapter 6. The title is, Here I Come! That's exactly what Eli Cash says when he's driving to the wedding and crashes his car and kills the dog Buckley.
1: <laughs> so, I don't <laughs> know
0: for a fact. Well, now I'm got
1: to f- read the whole book again and I look know. for connections. So.
0: I do think that there is some connection. I don't know to what extent it was intentional. I hope it was. Because I... I I love the world tandem bombs. I teach it, um, and I, I just think you know, it, it 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 has enough connection that I I could believe it being you know uh, uh, an overlap.
1: I like that digression.
0: Yeah, and and they're like characters like Raleigh Sinclair and Dudley, who you know are almost like very Dostoevskyan characters. Like like they kind of. Are, are vaguely connected to the story, but and not they really.
1: Create the main action of the story. Like I just jump into that quickly. That Raleigh and Dun- his name is Duncan. Dudley. 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 Raleigh and Dudley. I think that you know they um, come to like a sense of connection and like familial unity from what had been just like a formal distance relationship. And I think the whole movie is about coming to a greater sense of connection and unity um, in spite of the obstacles.
0: I mean, even the title, the Royal Tannenbaums, the Brothers Karamazov. Yeah, I, that's, that's just my little pet theory, just like my pet theory that Faulkner was Mr. F- uh, not Mr. Fortune. What is his name in um in the Flannery O'Connor um oh well go listen to it season is two. It Mr. Fortune? You're it talking about Fortune? Mary
1: Mary Mary what?
0: Fortune Pitts? Yeah, 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 yeah. Mr. Fortune being fought. <laughs> um so and 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 even though this is yet another digression, um, the novel Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace, rest in peace. Um has three sons, and the father, th- their father has already died, um, but it's it's got some overlaps, and it's it's even longer than the Brothers Karamazov. <laughs> and so... Um,
1: Guarantee that David Foster Wallace had read Dostoevsky there. Oh, of course, <laughs> of course.
0: And, um, and Flannery O'Connor, because um, Mario, the youngest brother, who's the Alyosha of their family, he has a shoe... That is identical to the shoe um, in uh, uh, the lame, the lame show Her first.
1: <laughs> Jinx.
0: So, um, not that it's funny to wear, you know, a shoe because a special shoe because you have to, but but that David Foster Wallace clearly would have thought that was funny in that book
1: because it, it's hilarious in it that story that's what we love about O'Connor is she's not afraid to make just anything hilarious. Like that's why, you know, I kind of laughed at the, the odor of corruption. Um, Just the idea that, that Alyosha is so crestfallen that the the corpse smells like a corpse, you know? And partly it's because I was thinking in the back of my mind about how Dostoevsky, when he used this Russian word that basically means stink, like Mm -hmm. the stink of corruption. And corruption, right? That word, I mean, it does mean that like a corpse is decaying, but it also has a, a heavy valence of like evil or sin or something like that, which I think that Alyosha is afraid that it means that Father Zosima wasn't holy because right, it, right. he has the like stink of corruption, just like any other person. And Alyosha's just got to learn A, not to expect like dazzling miracles. And B, no human being is God. Like you don't idolize a person and put them on a pedestal and think they're the saint, they're perfect. You turn to God, and so like he need to learn. Like I need to honor Father's and learn from him, but not think he's worship, right. worship, worship worthy, and like he's gonna avoid just like other human weaknesses and right. foibles and stuff.
0: And we see that you know, here comes another digression. Uh, when, like, celebrity pastors die, you know, for example, Ravi Zacharias died, and, and they waited till after he died to, like, you know, show his sin, which it is sin, and, you know, I hope that he repented of it, it, it just for his own Like, it's not that he wasn't going to go to heaven, but just that he hurt other people, Uh, Particularly his wife, (laughs) but the people that he cheated on his wife with, or or was you know making sexual advances to, Um, but that you know it's it's just so heartbreaking to see these these men and women of God that that die, especially after they die when you find out something, you know like it took Zosima dying for for Alyosha to understand that his corpse was going to stink and and he could never have known that without him dying and um and i think that sometimes god just allows the truth to come out you know after someone's died because maybe they, they were being held too highly in some people's hearts and and he breaks his his ability to break people's idols is is unique to him god god is the only one who knows perfectly how to break people of their idols and i think that you know, it it can be a huge temptation, as Alyosha does with Zosima, to put your faith in the person who has faith, and that I think that comes from a, a good instinct, which is to put your faith in Jesus, because Jesus has faith in the Father's will, but everything is given to Jesus. Like Jesus is God, so we don't put our faith in him as a prophet. We put our faith in him as a savior, as God. And I think that the temptation to put your faith in the faithful is just a very human one, uh, but ultimately is, is going to have its limitations and its weaknesses. And so certainly if you're someone who's like, well, I, I, I believe that Adam and Whitney are going to heaven, please join us. Like, please don't, don't let us go without you because we're going to be there because Jesus is there and praise the Lord. But we want you there too. We certainly want Josephine there. So if you're listening to Josephine like 30 years from now, um, please put your faith in Jesus. And, and you know, we're, we're trying to model that every day, but we at the same time know it may be in our lifetimes, it may not be. And so um, Dostoevsky, Kind of letting Alyosha go through that journey of doubt, uh, that was a big thing for Dostoevsky. Like having having doubt is is part of having faith. That if there's no way to doubt, that there's that the faith is somehow plastic or 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 un, um, almost like ungrowable, like it it's a plastic plant rather than a an organic plant that can grow, and and wilt and, re, you know, and, and um, you know, uh, replicate, you know. Um, and, of course, that goes, to the, that goes back to the epigraph. So, um, so as we come back to the narrator, one of the things that Whitney brought out is, like, the, the idea of there are two narrators. And this, this book says, I'm still in the same book, there are really two narrators. There's the personalized first-person narrator an anonymous local resident about whose private views and sympathies we learn a great deal in the course of the novel, and an omniscient, implied narrator who could be Dostoevsky himself. The local resident is a realist and a skeptic, while his double is an idealist and a believer. The local resident has a penchant for psychological analysis, although he ridicules the same trait in Ippolit the public, defense, the public prosecutor, while his alter ego on a deeper level shows a, his scorn for psychology. So, mm-hmm. Winnie, that was something I know you wanted to talk about, like the narrator's attitude towards psychology. What, what, what do you have to say about that?
1: Oh, I didn't remember wanting to talk about that.
0: It was uh, you wrote it on that envelope.
1: So. <laughs> That's funny. Um, well, I, you know. I think I was thinking of the courtroom scenes. Oh, okay. Um, okay. Because I'd have to look back and find the, the passages, but there are quite a few passages in those courtroom scenes where the narrator just frames the speeches by kind of showing really I think showing the limits of how accurate one can be. And the speeches do the same thing too. The limits of how accurate one can be when you're psych psychologically speculating. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think the prosecutor says, you know, oh, Dimitri is not the type of man who ever could have carried $1,500 around in his, like in a little bundle tied around his neck without spending it. He's just too impulsive of a man. Like, there's no way. Because the prosecutor is trying to prove that he stole the money from his father's room and went on a spree. So he's like, Dimitri, he's too impulsive. He's too, he could never just carry $1,500 around without spending it. And then the defender says the opposite, also using psychology. He's like, obviously, psychological analysis would show us that Dimitri is exactly the kind of man who would carry around $1,500 because he is impulsive, but he's a man of honor, and he needs to know that he hasn't completely given himself over to just being a scoundrel. Like, basically, the complexity of the human personality is something that Dostoevsky was very— Passionate about and interested in that you can't fully understand a person. I think he knew that he himself was a man of contradictions, and um, people often talk about. I, I've I've read three or four people I think talk about Dostoevsky splitting his personality into the different brothers. Um, even Smirnov has his epilepsy. Yes, like yes that you know, Dostoevsky was a man of the spirit and he was a sensualist and he was a very emotional man and he was a very intellectual man. He was just a complex man. And so the the narrator and I think even the characters themselves just through the way that they're giving these speeches and the way the audience, if, the, if you would call it that, in the courtroom reacts to the speeches, they're swayed by one and they're swayed by the other. Right. And then they're like, they're just confused, and some of them want Dimitri to be acquitted even though they think he's guilty. It's all very muddled up and complicated because human beings are muddled and complicated, and that is showing the limits of human reason, which is a, one of the ultimate purposes of this book, that yeah. like God's reason is not limited. Our reason is extraordinarily limited, even in understanding ourselves, much less understanding someone else.
0: Yeah and certainly understanding God. So when he's bringing up the narrator's interjections in, in the narration of the trial, because he's at the trial. And so um, I'm just going to read a couple of quotes. So th- during the prosecutor's speech, it says, Here, Ippolit Kirillovich's speech was interrupted by applause. They liked the liberalism of his depiction of the Russian troika. True, only two or three claps broke out, so that the presiding judge did not even find it necessary to address the public with a threat to clear the court and merely give the clappers a stern look. But if Polit Kurilovich was encouraged, never had he been applauded before, exclamation <laughs> point. For so many years, no one had wanted to listen to the man, and suddenly there came an opportunity to speak out for all Russia to hear.
1: Yeah, his opinion, it is funny, the like the narrator's opinion on the townspeople just is like seeping in pretty constantly where it's like this little guy who never can't, he can't even get, he's the one who can't even get his wife to respect him. Right. Yeah. Like his wife's like buddies with Dmitri and loves Dmitri. And anyway.
0: And then he says this about, um, Fetukovich. It says, so this is during Fetchikovic's speech or at, you know, when he stops, it says at this point, loud applause broke out in many parts of the hall but Fetchikovich even waved his hands as if begging not to be interrupted and to be allowed to finish. Everything at once became hushed. <laughs> and and the, just that, that like, it's almost like, see, here I go. The difference between the narrator's voice in the movie of The Royal Tenenbaums versus the narrator's voice that Eli Cash has in his writing So just that idea of like multiple voices telling stories, there's another connection. Um, but, but I just, the way the narrator tells the story of the trial is just so endearing to me. It's like it makes reading 100 pages of a trial almost worth it. Like it was still difficult, but these little moments, and I'll read, I'll read another one. So it says, so, so um, Fetchakovich finishes his speech, and it says, this is the beginning of chapter 14 of book 12. Thus Fetchikovich concluded, and the rapture that burst from his listeners this time was unrestrainable like a storm. To restrain, it, to restrain it now was unthinkable. Women wept. Many of the men also wept. Even two of the dignitaries shed tears. And and it's almost like I get this impression with the narrator at this point, like he's he is elevating his his uh, pitch and his his narration to try and capture like the the majesty of this defense uh, that that uh, has given for Dmitri,
1: or or is he because he doesn't consistently approve of the speech and everything about it necessarily. Is he almost chuckling at how easily moved and, like, emotive the people in the audience are? I don't I, know.
0: I, I mean, I'm just, you know, I call me, uh, you know, a, a simple-minded person. But I read that and just thought he was, he was just moved by how moving it was. So, instead of being, like, judgmental of people being moved, it, like I said, he, it sounds like he describes it in more highfalutin terms than he did uh, uh, Karilovich's like, oh, you know, he only got two or three claps, but
1: yeah no one had clapped
0: for him before.
1: And that's the thing, he knows Kirillovich because they, like, live in the same right. town, whereas the other guy's from out of town, he's kind of a celebrity, so it makes sense they'd all kind of be excited and in awe of him so that kind of makes sense and like the narrator kind of seems like he's just like it says he's a realist it said he's a realist in that passage you just read Mm -hmm. kind of a like vaguely liberal minded just like modern secular person is the, the narrator and so he would like the tenor of the prosecutor's speech I mean sorry of the defense attorney's speech more That makes sense. And, you know, okay, I've told you yesterday, I've been so struck many times by how likely Russian people seem to be to, like, go out of their minds with emotion when they, like, hear something awesome. Like, I was struck by that in the biography so often. Like, there was this time that Dostoevsky went to, like, a Pushkin festival, and he did a reading and gave a speech and stuff, and he was like... Well, okay, I'll read you one quote about what he said. This wasn't even after a speech. It was just like people saw him on the street the night before he was going to give a speech. At 930, when I got up to go home, they raised a hurrah for me in which even people not in sympathy with me were forced to take part. Then the whole crowd rushed down the stairs with me and without coats, without hats, followed me out into the street and put me in a cab and started kissing my hands, not one, but tens of people and not just young people, but gray haired old folks. Like he kept writing letters home to his wife that were like, people were weeping in the streets. People were falling out of their chairs listening to me, you know, so dramatic and I was thinking about how this book ends like, hurrah for Karen Mazov. And it sounds artificial. It's like a modern American person that anyone would be like, hurray for Karen Mazov. I think Russian people are just like, this is the way that Dostoevsky makes them same at least. They are carried away by passions. Like, I love that. One of the most beautiful things about being around Josephine all the time is that she would just be like, yay about anything. Like you can just hand her a toothbrush and she'll be like, "Yay, teeth!" Woo, you know, she's like clapping. I I think I like I'm very endeared to that by the oh. Russian spirit.
0: And I I also am am prone to doing that all the time. Yes, yes. Um I probably have said the word udalali like 50,000 times yeah. in my life.
1: It's really nice to know that I cuz I'm more of a calm person than that by temperament, I think, but I can go show Adam or Josephine now something small. Like, I'll be like, look, I just saw a cat out in the yard, and they will both get very excited and maybe, like, scream and want to run outside. Like, it's just nice to know that someone will get excited.
0: So, speaking of getting excited, the narrator gets excited. This is on page 680 in the Fortune Smiles on Metia uh, chapter. It says... So I think this is when, okay, this is Katerina Ivanovna. Before she um, turns on Dmitri. this is her still, like, you know, um, like, basically, like, putting up a defense for Dimitri. And then the narrator says, no, never shall I forget those moments, exclamation point. She began telling, she told everything italics. <laughs> the whole episode Mitya had revealed to Alyosha, including the bow to the ground and the reasons and about her father and her appearance at Mitya's, and did not betray by a word, not by a single hint that Mitya himself had suggested through her, through her sister that they send Katerina Ivanovna to him for the money. She magnanimously concealed it and was not ashamed to present it as if she she herself had gone running to a young officer on her own impulse, hoping for something to beg him for money. This was something tremendous! Exclamation point. I had chills and trembled as I listened. The courtroom was dead silent, grasping at every word. Here was an unparalleled thing, so that even from such an imperious and contemptuously proud girl as she was, such such extremely frank testimony, such sacrifice, such self-immolation was almost impossible to expect.
1: I actually love how this book will have people doing things that seem... It' really impressive, these grand gestures that seem so noble, but then it complicates it and undermines it. Like I, I think a typical novel would just have Katharina Ivanovna just be a proud but noble girl who like sacrifices herself on the altar of Dimitri's well-being. but then she like can't stand it anymore and reverses herself a little bit after this. So like what she's doing is theatrical. I would say, right? It's like a, it's a flagellation or, like a, a laceration is what, um, what she is called earlier, but it's like unsustainable because she's doing it. Kind of, I mean, I think it's similar to what, um, their father does, like acting a role. It's just that the role that she acts is not a buffoon. The role she acts is a, a heroine, an extremely self-sacrificing, and she's in love with her own virtue is what Dimitri says about her. But all that to say that the narrator is like kinda naive enough to get sucked in. He's like, Man, she is amazing. And what she's doing is amazing. Like in the sense that a young woman back then to like just go into some random officer's private room by herself and be like bowing to the ground and like asking for money makes her seem like a prostitute. Like it's not good. It would like ruin her reputation. And she just Stands up in front of everybody and says that she did it to help him. It's like it is amazing and it's totally understandable why he's in awe of it. Um But he he is carried away by the emotions of the courtroom there. Yeah. So
0: that's that's all happening in the courtroom, and really, like there there are so many moments in in like chapter one of book 12 where he's talking, he, you know, the narrator's talking and, and giving kind of, you know, different points. Um, I won't read all of them just because we're already at one an hour and 37 minutes. But one of the things that he does, um, well, okay, f- first of all, at some point he, like, reveals the name of the town, which he's like, I guess I never thought to tell you all where we, where we are. Um, but it says this on page <laughs> 666. It says, I will note that Rakitin was one of the most important witnesses and was undoubtedly valued by the prosecutor. It turned out that he knew everything, knew surprisingly much, had really been everywhere, seen everything, spoken with everyone, knew in the most detailed way the biography of Fyodor Pavlovich and of all the Karamazovs. And and then um, one of the things that he learns in Rakitin's testimony, it says, note bene. Grushinka's last name turned out to be Svetlov. I learned it for the first time only that day in the course of the trial. So, so it's almost like the narrator is kind of like, I mean, and, and I think I mentioned it in the first episode, Rakitin could be the narrator.
1: Or like a source, an important source for the narrator. Right, right. You know what I mean? Like, the, oh, I got this from Rakitin kind of thing. Yeah, because that motif of Rakitin knowing everything comes up in the beginning of the book. It's like it carries through the whole book that he's in everybody's business. Yes, it says um, that he he. It was like Rakitin told me what they ate when they had dinner in the Father Superior's cell in the monastery because he was like buddies with all the kitchen staff because he just had to always know everything. Yeah, Um, he's a real busybody type. Right, I think he thinks the more he knows, the more. He's superior he is to other people, mm-hmm. or something, but he, he would be a good source, and he explicitly is mentioned as a source at least that one time. But right. he'd be a good source for a narrator because he is such a busybody.
0: And we'll talk about Rakitin and several of the other like minor characters in the episode. The minor characters that's that was the eighth episode that I couldn't think of on the first episode. Um. But it's interesting that Whitney's bringing that up about Rakitin because Alyosha also is always in every other scene. It's like he he's almost like this, like Jake Barnes in *Sun Also Rises*, where he's the narrator, but he's not the main character. Um, and I think you know, or Nick Carraway and *The Great Gatsby*. Like, I think that that's a, an an effective way to tell a story is to have the observant person tell the story about the, uh, the active person. So Dimitri could never narrate a story. Um, and Ivan, I think, just never... Uh, it's almost like Ivan was too closed off emotionally, so he couldn't, he couldn't observe things in a sensitive way. And so... Um,
1: I think being an egoist keeps you from being a good observer. Like, Alyosha is not an egoist, so he notices other people.
0: So, yeah, and I think you're right, and, and it's like that's also why he's everywhere because he's not so self-centered and self-involved that he actually is always like, oh, I've got to go to so-and-so's house after this. Like, he's always going and visiting everyone else. The only time anyone comes to visit him is the first scene in the novel, um, and so it's just interesting that um, Alyosha could be the source for a lot of the details of of the nar- that the narrator is privy to, um, but then he also mentions, like I just read, he just learned uh, Grushenko's last name at the trial. Like he admits his limitations as a narrator, but he also is kind of like almost like a little proud, like 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 he he's a little arrogant about being the narrator. But then at other times he's very just matter of fact and then in, in some points he's like like legitimately surprised or moved like I read that section with Katerina Ivanovna like he, he he can be a realist but still have like the capacity to be moved but he's not this like what he's saying consummate Russian he's somehow got the sprinkles of the the like western ideologies of the philosophies of the 19th century kind of pulling him away from being truly Russian. And so thought we'd... <laughs> there's so many other points where the narrator kind of just juts in. I, I wrote down like 20 of them. I but, have
1: one I'd like to yeah, throw go, in at go. some point. Um, although I, I would just add to what you just said that maybe the narrator, I think he is kind of a, a proxy for the reader. Like that passage I read from the biography said, the, the reader you know, a person who was reading a novel and a periodical in contemporary Russia was likely to be like pretty influenced by Western ideas because the whole educational system in Russia at that time, you learned French like fluently from the very beginning. It was just westernized. And so anyone reading his novel is going to be one of the people who's been influenced by Western ideas. Like the the serfs and peasants who haven't been influenced by western ideas also aren't reading novels so the the narrator is a like a a member of the audience kind of a kind of person who might be reading this novel and dostoevsky wants the ideas of the novel to sink in so he he lets the narrator just be like a typical reader a little more but okay this is just this is really the only one that i had picked out as just a first impression. This kind of struck me about the narrator. But this is, I'm not going to give page numbers because I think my edition is out of print. No one's going to be using it anyway. But,
0: but say, say what chapter it's in.
1: It's in Stinking Lizaveta. Okay. Um, which,
0: which book is that? Like what pages in your? Well, it's 89. It's okay. like quite so early it's on. Like yeah. It's like two. the
1: second chapter of book three. Oh, book three. Okay. Stinking Lizaveta. Um, speaking of stinking, right? The stink of corruption, stinking Lizaveta. Lizaveta is like a holy fool. Mm-hmm. Um, she's not... She's dirty and literally stinks, <laughs> but she's not morally dirty, you know? Um, the same thing with Father Zosima. Same thing with an onion that you might give to someone. But anyway, so many things you can say about this book. But. So, Lisa Veta, the chapter ends... Um, by saying, talking about Smyrtakov being born to stinking Lizaveta. It says, So this Smyrtakov became Fyodor Pavlovich's second servant and was living in the lodge with Grigory and Martha at the time our story begins. He was employed as cook. I ought to say something of this Smyrtakov, but I'm ashamed of keeping my readers' attention so long occupied with these common menials. And I will go back to my story, hoping to say more of Smyrtakov in the course of it. Okay, two things that really strike me about this. A, narrator knows the whole story already, and he knows that Smyrnikov is the murderer, and he knows he's going to have to talk about him a lot more. So it's like, is he preserving suspense? Like, it's kind yeah. of funny, the game he's playing. He's like, maybe I'll have a chance to talk about Smirdakov later, but he's really not important. Like, that's so mm-hmm. weirdly, like, playful. Then, okay, second thing... I'm ashamed of keeping my readers' attention so long occupied with these common menials. That echoes the author's preface. The idea of, like, the narrator of the story is the type of person who might be like, why am I reading about servants? Who wants to read a novel about servants? Servants have no interesting interior life. Dostoevsky doesn't feel that way at all. Like, Dostoevsky had kind of a crusade fighting against people There were a lot of people in the Russian intelligentsia who believed that the the serfs and the peasant class and just the kind of typical Russian person was too boring to live almost like they basically have no interior life. They're so ignorant and degraded, like they're almost not even human. I mean, there was from people who were liberal minded and wanted to emancipate the serfs. They had this utter contempt for them at the same time. It's a weird combination that Dostoevsky hated um, and you see his narrator expressing some of that same attitude that we know Dostoevsky can cannot endorse. Yeah.
0: So there are a couple things I, I'm going to mention because um, Whitney mentioned it, so I'm I'm going to like point out this like like where the narrator, like you were saying, like the narrator is kind of winking at the audience. Like, um, Smirnov not worth going into detail about. Wink. Um, but then um, when Dmitri's is getting uh, questioned by Ippolit Karilovich and um, Max, uh, Mikhail Makar- Makarovich, um, who's basically like the, the murder, um, murder police, <laughs> he's the homicide investigator. It says on page 462, this is in the first torment, the prosecutor exchanged meaningful glances with the district attorney and managed to wink at him unobserved. And I just, I don't know why, Dostoevsky has several moments that winks happen, and I just, I love winks. Like, my one of my favorite moments in all of Seinfeld is the wink that George does in the episode, The Wink. Um, and then it says, on page 465, at the beginning of the second torment, it says, On the way there, they had had time to set up a few things and make arrangements for the impending case. And now, at the table, the sharp little mind of Nikolai Parfenovich caught on the wing and understood every indication, every movement in the face of his older colleague from half a word, a look, a wink of the eye. And just that that they're like in, in, you know they're just in tandem, like they they, they 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 understand each other so well and it's like we don't even have to like whisper it behind Dimitri's back. They're just like, wink, we got him.
1: Well, it's like so charming the way when you're watching The Wire or something like that and they're interrogating a suspect and you see them like playing a game and playing off each other and being so masterful at getting the person to talk and you're like, oh, this is good. But in this novel, the narrator might be in a way, simple-minded enough or naive enough to be like, look at them. They're they're good at their job. Like, they know what they're doing. They're getting what, out of him what they need out of him. But the reader can step back and say, but he's not guilty. Like, this masterful game they're playing of trying to, like, get him to confess, A, he's not guilty. Like, they're getting him to confess stuff that makes him seem kind of guilty, but he's not guilty. So it's, it's a travesty of justice. And B... They are lacking the compassion for him that we feel they should have because we, A, we know he's not guilty. B, we've been following him around and we know so much more information about him that we feel compassion for him. C, they've been hanging out with him on social occasions a bunch of different times, so you think they'd have a little compassion just based on that, but they they seem to be caught up in the game of being good at their jobs. Yeah.
0: So um just it's interesting as you say that I, I have several more passages than I marked. So I basically um I marked everything in different color highlighters. So all the narrator parts are in light blue. <laughs> so I did a quick like perusal of all the light blue highlightings and uh, or mild linings, if you will, because that's what I was using, a mild liner. But um in the Here I Come section, it says, I will just say one thing. His heart did not, this is about Dimitri, his heart did not argue even for a moment. I shall not be believed, perhaps, if I say that this jealous man did not feel the least jealousy towards this new man, this new rival who had sprung up from nowhere, this officer, this is Grushenka's original uh, man that like spurned her. And like promised her they'd get engaged and didn't and is kind of like implied that there's some sort of like, you know he 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 took advantage of her sexually. It says if some other man had appeared he he would at once have become jealous and would perhaps again have drenched his terrible hands with blood. But towards this man, her first, he felt no jealous hatred as he flew along in his troika, not even any hostility. Though it is true, he had not yet seen him. And I thought it was interesting that, like, you know, the narrator's going, basically, like, doing the the psychology thing where he's, like, any other man, Dmitry, would have, like, killed him if he had found that Grushenka had another suitor. Um, but this first one, he, he, like, respected him. He didn't feel any ill will. And, he's and, the
1: rightful suitor. Is that what your translation calls right. him? The rightful suitor? Yeah, and... And this idea
0: of, like, he flew along in his troika, which, of course, comes back in the trial. So, you know, the narrator, like what he's saying, has been through the whole experience already. So for him to use the word troika
1: Dimitri's is a runaway aloaded. troika. Yeah. yeah, yeah. like Russia's a runaway troika. What? It's like, what if Dimitri is the soul of Russia and not Alexei being the soul of Russia, the quintessential Russian? Well, and
0: that's, I think you're bringing up the great point, which is, there are three ways for the soul of Russia to go: Dmitri, Ivan, or Alyosha. And really, it's almost like they had already gone the way of Dmitri, and then they were in the process of going toward Ivan, and then maybe one day mm-hmm. in the future they'll go the way of Alyosha. But um, but that's just interesting. And th- and then this this part of the narration actually. Is, is kind of the flip side of that. This, so this is the beginning of gold mines, and I think it's the same section. It says, Jealousy! Exclamation point. Othello is not jealous. He is trustful, Pushkin observed. And this one observation already testifies to the remarkable depth of our great poet's mind. Othello's soul is simply shattered and his whole worldview clouded because his ideal is destroyed. Othello will not hide, spy, peep. He is trustful. On the contrary, he had to be led, prompted, roused with great effort to make to make him even think of betrayal. And it says a truly jealous man is not like that. So, you know, I thought that that was really an interesting little little point where the narrator has a digression, as we've had so many in this podcast. um, But that he mentions Othello, and of course, he's showing he's read Pushkin, he's read Shakespeare. And he's comparing Dmitri to Othello, which is an interesting overlap.
1: And in the trial, um, I want to say it's Kirillovich or whatever his name is, the um, prosecutor says they have their Hamlets, we have our Karamazovs. Yes. For he's like the typical Russian type is a Karamazov, yes. a sensualist that has no self control. Um, gives in to base desires, a runaway troika.
0: But, of course, the wink there, and I just winked, even though you're listening, is that Dostoevsky, Dostoevsky is saying, like, I'm on the level of Shakespeare. And that's that's part of what makes creators interesting, in in, in my view, is that they they don't see, well, I'll never be Shakespeare. It's like, well, just be as good. You don't have to be better, but you can. You can say what it, what is good about this, and how can I add my verse to, you know, like like the 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 lines from Dead Poet Society. Like it's your chance to contribute a verse to the to the poem of life, and and I think Dostoevsky really does that incre- incredibly well with the novel as a whole. And really, like I said, the narrator is the first interaction we get other than the author's note and the epigram and so epigraph and so what's the difference I'm not sure but um but that that like that's how Dostoevsky thought to set up this whole story is through this narrator who's like sometimes endearing and sometimes incredibly infuriating like that stinking Lizaveta chapters all one paragraph and sometimes Whitney can get upset with me because I will like not be done yet, and she's like thinking, "Well, I speak in paragraphs and finish them, and you just seem to speak in like on the road style, like typing you know like on one long scroll and just like no no paragraphs, no punctuation and and so it's it's interesting that the narrator has that moment to like point to Pushkin and point to shakespeare and and like specifically to connect it to, um, to Othello, because Othello really is a novel about emotions. I teach it in a class called I Second That Emotion. And this novel is for sure an emotional novel. Like, it, it's just full of, um, of characters getting thrown out of their emotions or deep into serious emotions. And we mentioned it on the first episode. Alyosha has to be around those emotions and and, like, how do you keep yourself from becoming hateful when you're around a hateful person or becoming lustful when you're around a lustful person? Or what you know, et cetera, et cetera. And and I think the only true answer is is faith in Christ. And so uh, I'll leave with this uh this moment in the narration. This is in the Laya Gavey section, um, page three seventy-four in my volume, and it says but in this way, the fact came to be remembered and noted that on the eve of a certain event at noon, Mitya did not have a kopeck, and that in order to get money, he sold his watch and borrowed three rubles from his landlords, all in the presence of witnesses. I note this fact beforehand. Why I do so will become clear later. And, and you know, just I- any storyteller that sets up like, now remember that, it's a great persuasive tone. Like, now don't forget this because it's going to come back. It 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 hooks you in. it makes you want to have that redeeming. Like, that's why Dimitri not having a kopeck and borrowing all that money meant meant something. It's because he had to have killed his father to to steal the three thousand rubles. Which, by the way, I don't know the exact currency relation, but if a kopeck is a a, a subunit of, of a ruble, I think of it as like Kopecks or dollars, and rubles are like $100. So, uh, and I mentioned this to Whitney, like Dimitri wanting 3,000 rubles to get Grushenka would be the equivalent of like a $300,000 wedding, like basically wedding uh, engagement ring, honeymoon package, um, which I'm sure there's some women that would not settle for that. They'd ask for more, but um, all I can say is like the divorce rate for what uh, engagement rings that, are, that cost more than $50,000 is like almost 100%. So be careful.
1: I found a thing. I don't, I don't know how accurate this is, but it says that um, a ruble is 100 kopecks, mm-hmm. and a ruble is worth like 50 cents in modern money. That doesn't sound like as much as I would have expected no it to
0: you? i I don't think i mean like I said, the way I imagine it is in terms of like what it would buy you then, you know what i'm saying well
1: right i mean that's that's the thing what it would buy you then would make more sense, but like um anyway i was like in eighteen ninety seven one dollar was worth one dollar ninety seven rubles, whatever you would call that. Ten rubles was worth five dollars and seven cents. Five dollars ten okay, ten rubles in eighteen ninety nine would be the equivalent of a modern $145.
0: Right. And that's why I say like I didn't want to get into the sorry. (laughs) It's okay. It's that's why I say like I didn't want to like do a a specific uh conversion. It's it's about what that money would buy you like if he needs three rubles loaned from his landlady it's like that might be like three hundred dollars like because because if if you're thinking of it in terms of like a copeck might buy something you can't buy anything with a penny
1: yeah you know i I guess i was thinking about more like how hard would it be to get 3,000 rubles right. for, like, an average person. How long would it take a working person to, you know, earn it? Like, I, yeah. I was just trying to get a sense of that. Um, I don't mean to muddy Yeah. Mass. Well, and the
0: reason I, I bring that up is, like, the narrator seems to kind of have this, like, this connection to the financial element of the story. That it's, like... It makes sense that he would need that money instead of saying, like, it's foolish for him to even want to be with Grushenka, let alone to blow 3,000 rubles on her in a night.
1: Well, they're trying to apply logic. I mean, actually, it's it's a good point that you're making that, like, the the money particulars don't really matter, because I think that's actually what's going on here, too, is that, there's a tremendous amount of attention given to the money mm-hmm. by the prosecutor and the defense and the narrator. Pay attention to this money. This money's gonna be crucial, but the money's not crucial. As it turns out, the crime was committed. It had nothing to do with the money at all. Right. It had to do with ideas, the power of ideas. And I think Dostoevsky's driving home the point that ideas matter as much or more than money, whereas a lot of people would say, like, no, like, material things are what drive everybody and everything. And he's yeah. like, Smertakov didn't commit this murder because of money. He stuck the money in his sock basically and then gave it to Ivan later and it's right. like I don't even want it. It wasn't about money ultimately as much attention is given to money.
0: Yeah. And and you know this idea of like the narrator seems to just be so hung up on the money. Maybe he's thinking that the readers will think it's not worth re- reading a 800 page novel if if the money is not the focus you know but really like Dostoevsky knows it's not and so that like multi-layered dramatic irony of Mm -hmm. like knowing that Dostoevsky has a purpose for for all of this that the narrator can't see and that the narrator is ultimately like he doesn't have this epiphany at the end of like Yeah, you know, it's almost like he's still telling the story, but he it hasn't the meaning hasn't sunk in for him. Very similar to like we're we're reading the story, but the meaning doesn't immediately set in for us unless we're like doing something like listening to this podcast or reading, um a Keramasov Companion, like re reading critical work that that helps us to understand it. It's a very hard novel to understand because of its immensity. Like, I don't think that it's hard to understand from its language or its... Mm-hmm. Um, the plot, necessarily... The plot is it's basically like a, a family story that turns into a murder mystery, and the audience knows who the murderer is and why he murdered uh, Fyodor Pavlovich Karamazov, but they know why it's almost like they know how because they know his reason, but it it ultimately becomes like, do you see it Dostoevsky's way that an idea can create the seed? And of course that goes to the epigraph. The seed of faith can grow many, many, you know, um, you know, a, a huge yield of crop, but so can the seed of poisoned, um, like like he calls it an adulterer of thought. Like a poison thought can be just as deadly as a crop as a seed of faith can be life-giving as a crop.
1: This book really emphasizes free will, though, and I think that could be why we're not given a heavy-handed, now here's the moral of the story. The narrators learn the lessons. You're just given free will to think, this novel prompts you to think about big questions and then you have your freedom of will. Um, Maybe not to understand everything, but just to, you know, choose which path you will follow blessings or curses. And that connects in my mind to Shakespeare because obviously Shakespeare's plays don't have a narrator. They're they're plays. They're just voices in competition, really points of view and worldviews and things like that. I think that can make it difficult when you teach a Shakespeare play or read one or watch one performed to know what worldview is supposed to predominate, you know, wh- what is, what does Shakespeare really believe about this question? It's sometimes hard to tell because it's just voices and competition. And uh, there's a wonderful um, quotation from the biography that says, Dostoevsky imparts a monumental power of self-expression to his characters that rivals Dante's Sinners and Saints, Shakespeare's Titanic Heroes and Villains, and Milton's Gods and Archangels. Um, Dostoevsky's personages seem to dwarf their surroundings with the same superhuman majesty as the figures of Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel. I think it's significant that the narrator of this book doesn't dwarf his surroundings with superhuman majesty, but Dimitri kind of does. And so does Fyodor Pavlovich in the same way that, um, like, a Falstaff type mm-hmm. in Shakespeare does. You know, the, the, like, the buffoon who somehow is, like, magnetic and you just keep listening to him. Yeah, um, yeah the the connection to Shakespeare is made clear in that uh, quotation I just read. But I think the um, willingness to give everyone their voice and let them speak and then make the reader apply freedom mm-hmm. and have the dignity of thinking through big questions and figuring them out. Yeah. It, it applies in his works too.
0: And I think, you know, this is a good place to end the, the narrator, which at this point maybe this is the Dostoevsky narrator and not the like the, the townsperson. This is on three forty in an opportune moment, which is in uh book seven, which is the Alyosha book. It says, this was why Alyosha's heart was bleeding. And of course, as I have already said here, sorry, as I have already said, here first of all was the person he loved more than anything in the world. And this person was disgraced. This very person was defamed. Let this murmuring of my young man be thoughtless and rash. But I repeat again for the third time granting beforehand that it is also perhaps thoughtless of me to do so, I am glad that at such a moment my young man turned out to be not so reasonable. The time will come for an intelligent man to be reasonable, but if at such an in- exceptional moment there is no love to be found in a young man's heart, then when will it come? And and it continues from there. Um it says, "I must not, however, fail to mention in this connection a certain strange phenomenon that did, if only momentarily, reveal itself in Aloisha's mind at this fatal and confused moment. this new something italics that appeared in flash consisted of a certain tormenting impression from his conversation with his brother Ivan the day before, which Aloisha kept, now kept recalling precisely now. Oh, not that any of his basic, so to speak, elemental beliefs were shaken in his soul. He loved his God and believed in him steadfastly, though he suddenly murmured against him. Yet some vague but tormenting and evil impression from the recollection of the previous day's conversation with his brother Ivan now suddenly stirred again in his soul, demanding more and more to come to the surface. It was already quite dark when Rakitin, passing through the pine grove from the hermitage to the monastery, suddenly noticed Alyosha lying face down on the ground under a tree, motionless and as if asleep. He went up and called him by name, and, and then, of course, then they start talking, but um, just that, that part that I highlighted, I'm glad that at such a moment my young man turned out to be not so reasonable. The time will come for an intelligent man to be reasonable. Of course, that's that's the phrase that Smyrdyakov uses and is like winking to Ivan is like, well, you're an intelligent man, right? And it says the time will come for an intelligent man to be reasonable, but if it's such an exceptional moment, there is no love to be found in a young man's heart, then when will it come?
1: And that he interprets it as love, that that Alyosha is so sad that he didn't get this like miracle from Zosima. I think that it makes sense to interpret that like in a reasonable way. It makes sense to interpret that as being just kind of naive and dumb. But he looks into Eliush's motives and says no it's he wanted everyone to honor Zosima and he could see that everyone was expecting something like really supernatural and special to happen and now people are starting to doubt him and they're starting to dishonor him and he just it's it's love for Zosima it's not just a selfish desire to see a miracle it's love for Zosima that makes him want Zosima to be honored and appreciated and so like if Alyosha were able to be coldly reasonable and be like, well, of course his corpse is going to stink. That's what corpses do. That, that wouldn't show the love that Alyosha truly had for Zosima.
0: Yeah. And that, I think you bring a great point to end on as we're getting ready to talk about the two fathers, uh, Fyodor Pavlovich, Karamazov and Father Zosima, uh, in the next episode, that love doesn't end because a person has died. That you can continue to love your parent, spouse, child, friend, boss, coworker, whatever it is, um, fan, you know, f- extended family member after they've passed by honoring them, and and um, you know, I think Alyosha has that that grievance in his heart, but that's that's what is supposed to happen, and I think that just that idea of um, like when he was mentioning about the woman who 's lost her son that comes to see zosima zosima 's reaction is the same he says you you shouldn 't be comforted right now. it should be tearing up your soul that you 've lost your child and that your husband might you know um, fall to becoming a you know addicted to alcohol because that 's the kinds of things that happen in the wake of grief, but the best thing you can do is just go back and be with him and and just just be patient with the Lord. And, um, and I think that that's, you know, the the narrator uh, in the omniscient sense who may or may not be Dostoevsky. I, I'm just going to say it is because why, why wouldn't it be? Um, he's the creator of the story. He has such a heart for all his characters, especially Alyosha, And it, it comes out there, like that's one of the ones that I marked, where he really like what he said, gives Alyosha the time to have emotion. And I think that that's something that's very hard as a parent, um, especially when your child is crying. You want them to have a different emotion than that. But sometimes we need to cry, and sometimes we need to grieve. And so maybe it's not literal crying, but it's like in, you know crying in our spirit. Um, and I think that this, this novel allows it's a very allowing emotional novel instead of a prescriptive emotional novel. Um, and I think that that's, you know, the same can be said about uh, The Real Tannenbaums. And um, I think that that's, that's what's really powerful about just the, the way this story is told and the tellers of this story. Um, and even the epigraph really sets us up to understand this is going to be like the process of seeds germinating and growing and, and blooming and, and going through the seasons of dying and coming back. And, and that in so doing, more life can come, but it requires some death, some pain, some uh, some separation, uh, that it can't just be all, all blooms all the time. Um, and so we'll talk about... The two fathers on the next episode. Whitney, do you have any parting thoughts on the author's note, narrator, epigraph?
1: Um, no, I don't think so. We we certainly cover it a lot and it's I love this book. I wanted to do a podcast on it because I wanted some help thinking it through. I wanted to spend the time, you know, to to dig in because it's it's rich. The first time I read it through I could tell there were these rich depths to it that I hadn't actually explored by just reading it once. So I'm thankful that we have the chance to do that this summer.
0: And, and of course we're not going to dig up all the gold in this. So, you know, we, we encourage our (laughs) co-readers to, to, to just look into it yourselves, to read your own critical works about it, to obviously have your own interpretations and, and, you know, we don't stand on all of this as, like, this is the be-all, end-all, but uh, as Whitney mentioned, I think it was in the first episode, although it may have been today, um, Dostoevsky does have some intentions with it, so to throw those out is to be kind of disrespectful to the, the creator of the story as a whole, But um, but that's what what we enjoy so much about teaching literature is that we we're starting the conversation with new people or we're, we're picking up a conversation with people that have already spoken about it and and just like I said adding our verse um and so you know if we overlap with a lot of readings of this it's probably because you know we agree with was what's already been said and and if we diverge hopefully it's in in a way that bears fruit and is not just like a a, fr- a fruitless exercise but uh, we've enjoyed talking about the narrator the um, author's note the epigraph and we're looking forward to talking about father Zosima and father Fyodor Pavlovich Karamazov on the next episode see you then bye-bye